Living Corporate is brought to you by the Leadership Range, a podcast within the Living Corporate Network, hosted by globally certified and Fortune 500 executive coach and leadership development expert Neil Edwards. The Leadership Range is focused on having real, raw, soulful and accountable conversations about inclusive leadership, allyship, professional development. Every week is a new episode with new learning and new actions to take on to grow inclusively. Make sure you check out the Leadership Range everywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, this is going to be, I think, a really informative, but of course, because it's Dr. Lawanda and Dr. Nikki, we're going to make it fun and it's going to be a good time. So it welcome is. to the break room. Welcome. <laughs> um, and if you are joining us for the first time, um, we will remind you that we are excited and privileged to be a part of this web show and, and podcast, The Break Room, which is focused on the mental health um, needs for black and brown folks in the world of work. And that's really where we sort of center a lot of our time and conversation. And we're here to not only sort of um, give you information about topics, but also to make sure we answer questions for very specific things that you have going on. So I'll introduce myself and then kick it over to my co-host. I am Dr. Nikki Coleman. I am a licensed psychologist here in the state of Texas. Uh, I have been licensed. Hmm, I need to do the math. I think it's like 18 years. <laughs> it's a random number. I've been a licensed psychologist um, for about 18 years. And um, I have a private practice here in Houston. Uh, and we're going to spend our time today talking about therapy. What is it? What isn't it? Um, why black folks should be going, how to go about finding the right therapist for you and all those sort of really important nuggets. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm excited. I think this is a very important topic and it's very timely, especially as we are coming upon, I think today, actually a year of the pandemic. So it is very important to talk about the impact of that and navigating that with therapy. But before we hop in, I am Dr. Lawanda Hill, y'all. She, her pronouns. I'm also a licensed psychologist in the state of Texas, as well as in the state of California. Um, I'm a consultant and curator of spaces. And I have been practicing probably maybe four years as a, as a licensed psychologist. And so I'm excited to have this, this conversation and make it fun and jovial, but also touch on some really serious things that we need as black folks navigating how to find a therapist. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about the conversation and we hope that you all drop your comments and your questions um, in the comments so that we can make certain that we answer them to the best of our ability. Absolutely. So if you're new to the break room, let us give you a little overview of our structure and format. While we have a specific topic that we focus on every week, we always start with what's the T. So we will get into, I'm interested to see. So, so this week, Dr. LaWanda is, um, she is responsible for the T. And then the other bookend is our, sort of uh, our opportunity to rant and be free. And we call it the last nerve. Uh, I had the privilege, the last nerve, when I tell you it's so freeing, I had the privilege of doing the last nerve last week. So this week also the last nerve goes to Dr. LaWanda. I'm excited to hear what tea we sipping on this week. I only have filtered water, but I'm going to pretend it's in It is a mystery of what's in my cup. I will I, tell. Yes. <laughs> it's we a love a mysterious woman. So let me start y'all off with this tea. So today's tea is, of course, has made headlines. I'm going to be talking about the fact that Meghan Markle and Prince Harry 
sat down with the one and only Oprah Winfrey. Okay. And of course, they talked everything, you know, their experience, you know, the the racism, what it was like being a part of this organization and this entity and being in this, you know, tough space, right? And so the key is I went to Black Twitter because Black Twitter is where Black <laughs> is where the streets are. And I like it. <laughs> so I went to Black Twitter and this is and I want to post this to you, Dr. Nikki, because I think okay. it will be interesting to discuss. So there are a number of different reactions, right? Mm-hmm. Some people are saying, wow, this is, you know, wow. Megan in her interview expressed suicidal ideation, mm-hmm. expressed having a very difficult time. She expressed not feeling the support she needed. Um, and so people are feeling very empathetic about that and feeling like, wow, like that's terrible. Mm-hmm. And this other range of reactions of people are like, you know, the British monarchy being racist, they being anti-black, you know, Prince Harry is uh, naive to think that just because he loved a black woman and he now has a black child or a biracial child or he loved a biracial woman, that that was going to change. And so welcome to everybody else's world and problem. Mm-hmm. And feel like he is still trying to defend this very institution that is prepared to let him die because they did cut you know financial ties he's he shared that without his mom's inheritance without princess diana uh money that he left that he would not be okay and mm-hmm. for tyler perry who put them up for i don't know how long maybe three months mm-hmm. okay so there's a number of different reactions and so the team Kind of like, all right, we know what's going on over there with the Brits. Um, but also, what did y'all expect? It's kind of mm-hmm. like a mix of sentiment. So I have a number of different reactions to it. I don't yeah. know what you think about it uh, and what y'all think about it. If, for those of you who did see the interview before we dive into tonight's topic, because I think it relates as she talked about her struggle with mental health and that yeah. kind of thing. So what do you think? So I think both things can be true. One thing that I don't like about Black Twitter is it constantly tries to create like these really stark dichotomies or like these really Mm. false boundaries of reality. Something is or isn't. And and there's a lot of nuance and gray area in the world. And Mm. so this is sort of the way that I think about it. Yeah, I wake up and realize as a Black woman in this country, I'm going to experience racism on a regular basis. Even though I live in a lot of privilege, I live in a lot of social class privilege, I have cisgender privilege, I have heterosexual privilege, I'm well educated, I have credentials that bring a sort of of prestige that comes along with that. Mm -hmm. So the structures that I've been able to interact with as a Black person around racism, sexism, don't impact me daily in Mm -hmm. that way right Mm -hmm. that's good that don't mean i don't still experience racism i'm not like automatically absolved from all of those things just because i have this privilege i mean the fact is i could be driving down the street i drive a nissan rogue a very classic middle car mom uh middle class mom (laughs) car right and i'm just a black woman and i can still encounter sort of Mm. virulent um interpersonal racism right um and I get microaggressed just like everybody else. So what I'm supposed to do, go someplace on the planet where I don't experience that because I already know what it is. Right. You can't escape mm-hmm. it, right? And so mm-hmm. I I heard the part, I didn't watch the interview in its entirety, but I heard her say, she went into it naively. Yeah. And I get, I think you could look at that and say, well, you get what you get. But I also <laughs> think 
I don't know that there's any experience in life that could prepare you for that. Like that's real. I'm an American. I don't even fully get why folks are like, you don't speak against the queen. I mean, I hear them intellectually, but what that is an embodied experience. Mm. I don't have that. So I don't know that she could have been prepared. And then it's also a very different thing to be in it and live in it every day. And none of us know what that feels like mm. or will ever know. Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I remember when everything was coming out about them dating and getting engaged or whatever. So my daughter is biracial. Her daddy's Mexican. He's uh, white, white skinned. He has like European ancestry. Um, and so my daughter's fairly light skinned. And I remember when everything came out with Megan and Harry, my, one of my cousins was like, I just think that could be your daughter. Like, I think that could be her to be a princess. And I was like, why would you wish that on my child? Like, <laughs> I think you think you complimenting us, but, but that ain't it. That ain't it, sis. That ain't it. Um, and so to hear Megan even refer to it as the institution, we don't know what that's like, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And if we could have black folks, so we're gonna connect it to our topic here, right? If we have black folks that are um in the corporate world whatever sort of uh, professional context you're in, in, in um, medical schools and medical corporations or in academia, and you start to get up the ladder, mm-hmm. they experience insidious racism day in mm-hmm. and day out. And that Facts. takes a toll on them psychologically. It creates burnout, you know, all of those things. So I'm like, don't be so hard on this. You know what? That's fair. And I appreciate that. On the one hand, it's like, yeah, because some people are like, you know, the naivete and like the, the privilege of not having experienced anti-black racism on a day to day such that this was just such the big experience for you. Some people had some reactions to that of like, welcome to our world. And I saw this that said colorism is what got her there and anti-black racism is what ultimately pushed her out. It's mm. very fair and accurate of like the colorism and your complexion and your experiences and the way you move through the world is what allowed you to marry into this. Mm-hmm. Ultimate anti-blackness is what ultimately pushed you out of it. And so, and also at the same time, because I believe in both ends, at the same time, nothing could prepare you for what you were, what you experienced. And definitely I have empathy for the, the, the psychological impact that I heard her talk about. Like that was very jarring. And, you know, she speaks about being in a dark place and like, you know, telling uh, her husband, like, I'm afraid to be left alone. Like, mm-hmm. By myself, and then they kind of stared into this this image of her with him, and she was like, "If you'll see, I'm holding his hand tight because it's like I'm just barely holding on." Mm. I think it's nuanced, and I think it's complex, and I really appreciate that perspective because it doesn't have to be this dichotomy of know what you're walking into or don't. But there's a level of privilege that I think contributed to her naivete, and then when she got in, it really just opened both of their eyes. In a yeah, yeah. We could get into this in terms of uh, our conversation about therapy, um, but sometimes I feel like Black folks in America, and I, I will, um, I believe in my understanding around the differences between institutionalized racism in this country and colonialism in other parts of the, the diaspora. We understand white folks and whiteness and racism in a di- different way mm-hmm. than other places, right? Like it's almost mm. like, um, I think about it like we've been in the house with racism this whole time versus colonialism where they live on the block, 
right? Like ah. you see them, but they ain't in your house. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. like, it is in our house <laughs> every day. Every day. So we have a different sort of intimacy with um with white racism in a way that maybe other folks don't. And so my my point that I'm I want to make here is that because of that, I think sometimes black folks have developed like a brittleness around mm. our ability to react to racism. Like if you're constantly hit with it all the time, you really sort of, it's like that James Baldwin quote, right? To be in a, uh, aware, a black man aware of racism is like to live in a constant state of rage. Yeah. And so I think we develop like this callousness around it um, that shows up sometimes in that way of like, you knew what it was. Mm. Yeah. And it was really fucked up. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so real. Think, yeah. I think um, there is where some of the role of therapy comes in, right? To help mm-hmm. you sort of. Um, process through, navigate, understand how the experience of living in racism impacts you as a Black person in specific, and we could talk about people of color, how it affects them in different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into it. I think that that, I mean, that T was relevant because her mental health, the impact of it, and just Black folks moving through the world impacted by racism has its own level of um um, story to it that I think is worthy of us really talk, diving into, especially as it relates to us thinking about pursuing therapy. What is it? Who are mm-hmm. who are not? What can you expect? What can you not expect? So let's dive into it, Doctor Nikki. What is into therapy? What is therapy? And black folks go to therapy, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> let's remember that. So um, therapy is a professional. Okay, I'm pausing on that part. Professional, <laughs> objective relationship that you develop with a trained mental health professional that creates a safe space for you to bravely engage with internal mental well being, internal challenges to your psychological health, whether that be um, the impact of things that happen in your past on your present or helping you really cope through and navigate your present experience. Sometimes therapy is a combination of those. But the idea fundamentally is recognizing that we as human beings are healed through our ability to connect with another human being through the mm-hmm. process of talk therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what therapy is in a big picture. What makes therapy different than Cause let me oh, let me just run down the list of all the things I've heard black folks say. <laughs> well, I just talked to you because I you easy to talk to. Well, and me for me, well, you already trained and went to school, so I can't just talk to you about it. Right. No. Right. You can't just be my therapist. Well, I talked to Pastor about it. Well, I mean, I can have a good conversation with my barber, with my hairdresser, and I feel good, right? Um, I have a friend who is a life coach, and so I just work it out with her. These are all the things that I hear people say. And while all of those things may be um, affirming, while they may be validating, while they may help continue to contribute to your overall sense of well-being, none of them are therapy. And I am a firm believer that there is no substitute for good therapy. And we can talk about good therapy versus bad therapy in a second. But there is a very specific sort of healing that comes through the experience of having a therapist that is able to meet you where you are culturally. And oftentimes for Black folks, that means our ability to fully uh, either understand or empathize deeply 
with our experiences around systemic, cultural, and individual racism, um, and who is able to help you see yourself in a non-judgmental yet accountable light. And I think the biggest difference between therapy and those other sort of spaces that we might get help in is that piece around objectivity and accountability. Mm. Hmm. Say more about that. When we okay, and I think that that kind of leads into a little bit about the different types of mental health professionals because there are. When we start thinking about therapy as a distinct relationship between professionals that has a level of objectivity, right? Yes. Objectivity. I was, I'm saying say more about that and then I'm like hopping into it. It's like, no, absolutely. Object, it's hard. And this is this is what comes up all the time. Like as a psychologist, I'll have friends, family members be like, oh, well, why can't we be my therapist? Why can't we talk through? Why can't we do whatever? Number one is is unethical. We can't have a dual relationship. I cannot have, you know, be a therapist to a person I'm in a relationship with, friends with, or even like one person removed, you know. Mm-hmm. But and for this very reason, you lose objectivity. There are certain yes. things that I am able to objectively say to a person who is not my friend, who is not my mentor, who is not my family member that I cannot because I just I'm shaped, I'm clouded by emotions like I'm clouded mm-hmm. by a vulnerable interpersonal relationship. And that's not to say that that's not the case in therapy, because we certainly do have vulnerable relationships with our clients, but it's different. And the objectivity is blurred once you cross that line and that boundary. Right. And so I think that a lot of times I hear that um, and I and I see it come up of like, well, why can't just my barber be the person or my friend be the person or my mom be the person? But the objectivity is kind of lost. Mm-hmm. And I remember one like hearing Taraji, um, Taraji B. Henson has a show or she had a talk show on uh, mental health. It's called Peace of Mind with Taraji. And she said the first time she went to a therapist, she thought she was going to be just talking to her therapist like she was talking to her girlfriends. Mm-hmm. And she realized her therapist was like, hey, pause. Let me objectively reflect back to you what I heard. Right. Most of your girlfriends or your friends or your family members going to be like, well, I can see how you weren't that wrong or mm-hmm. I can understand. So you lose a level of, of objectivity and critical. That's something that's very critical, not critical and harsh. But critical in in terms of that it can be essential, essential. Yeah, essential when you have. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's an important distinction, um, because it, same thing with pastor pastoral relationships. You know, mm-hmm. like there's still a level of objectivity that's impaired there, just because of the nature of the relationship. And I think that we don't talk enough about that. So I want to really highlight that. Yeah, I, I think that's so critical. So I'll just use an example from recently. Um, a client that I have been working with for a couple months and the session before um, our most recent session, we had to have that sort of accountability piece, right? Mm. Like, I hear you saying this, I hear you saying that, we've talked about this, we've talked about that. Where's the disconnect? What, yeah. You know, what is what is getting in the way of you actually doing these things that you've that you know you you say you know are good for you and that you've agreed to working on, right? But you're not doing them. And mm-hmm. so then we had a follow-up, you know, to say, what was that like for you? And her response was like, yeah, I was salty. I didn't want to hear it. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> there you go. Now I know I've done my job. If you exactly. salty, now I know. Because what's the difference, right? Your girlfriend may be thinking it. Or your parent may be thinking or your friend may be thinking it, but they're not going to always hold you accountable and ask the question in a way in which you can hear it. Yes. That's a that's a particular 
that is a, a element of therapy that I don't think you get in other relationships. And when we do group therapy, which is another topic, I'll tell people in group therapy, this is the space where we're going to give you feedback that other people don't give you. They just mm-hmm. go away <laughs> or they just self-select out of the relationship with you because they're yeah. giving you that feedback to hold you accountable. And yeah. so I think the this therapy, those two pieces are very critical, that adjectivity as well as that accountability. Yes. The other thing is on the other side, right? If I just want, can I just talk to you? Or I just talk to my girlfriends. What that does is, I mean, it takes a different level. It it gives a different level of emotional labor to your friends, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So therapy is a dedicated um, 45 or 50 minutes once a week um, that you have for you. And it's all about you. Right. Mm. Um, That's not the same as engaging with your friends, family, loved ones, partner, spouses about things that are going on in your life. Right. That there's always them and their needs because it's a relationship that is happening. Mm -hmm. And so why would you not give yourself that gift to be able to have that time out for yourself um, to be able to be with yourself, sit with yourself? Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean so this is the accountability part. Right. It does not mean that you just come to a place and vent, like you mentioned to Raji, right? She just wants to say, and let me tell you this, and let me tell you that. And like, you even believe this? And I can't believe that. Right, right, right. There is processing that happens. And that means that you need to oftentimes ask yourself out loud those mm-hmm. questions that come up for you in the quiet or in the dark or when you don't want to deal with it, right? You're actually pulling them out and looking at them and really sitting with those tough questions. It also means sitting in your discomfort. Yeah, that part. It's sitting in your emotional discomfort Mm -hmm. for the sake of experiencing it, right? It's not saying that being emotionally uncomfortable is good or bad. It's not saying that you should be crying or angry. It's that you are a human being. And in that process, you experience not just your thoughts, you're not just a reaction, but you also have this whole emotional life. And therapy is one of the few places, especially in our societal context, where it is absolutely not just acceptable, but really a functional part of therapy for you to be in those emotions. Mm-hmm. You don't get to emote out a like lot of emotions. I mean, a lot of information. Like we, yes. in the rest of the world, in other relationships outside of the context of therapy, you are we are mostly inclined to not be uncomfortable. Nobody wants to be uncomfortable. It is just a fact of life. Nobody wants to be uncomfortable. So you're going to shy away from that. Therapy is a space where you're going to be invited to sit with that discomfort and sit with those emotions because I firmly believe that emotions come to give us information if we would just pause to lean into them. And once you get on, because we get kind of stuck in being in the discomfort, but once you get on the other side of it, and you've actually leaned into it and the emotions have given you information. You're like, mm, sis, we've been here three or four times. There's a pattern. There's a pattern we're seeing. It's not leading to the outcome that you want. It's very different from what you want to see in your life. Now we're getting somewhere, right? Yeah. Now you have that time that's just dedicated to you with the clinician, with the therapist who are now, that's now giving you insight about, hmm, I never even paused to think about that because I've been venting. Mm-hmm. There's been no accountability. Or there's been no objectivity, but now we have these these different elements that are coming together to give insight to lead you to another side, which I think is well being. Well, yes, well being, and what I was so um, interesting and great that you said pattern because I was getting ready to say because what you want to find out 
through the process of talk therapy, through the process of processing your emotions and being in discomfort, is to point out the patterns because the other part of therapy is the doing something different. There you go. That's what makes it therapeutic. I, I remember I had a, a professor say that to me, that it's not just that um, you are changing behavior, but that you're doing something different towards your well-being. That is what makes it therapeutic. Mm. And so you don't get that with your friends. You don't get that even with your pastor necessarily. You don't get that with all these other sort of potential equally helpful. I shouldn't say, no, I challenge maybe the equally. That that's the highest. <laughs> like, being generous. <laughs> <laughs> that can maybe be helpful, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's not the same because then my job as the therapist is to hear, reflect back, point out the patterns, sit with you in your discomfort, and then also work with you as you change those patterns to find a healthier way, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's not a one and done, let me just let this off my chest sort of experience. It is an ongoing process in a relationship. And it's different in the sense that, and I would I would probably my bias, but I would say that it's different in other relationships in that there's a lot of theory Right. And science that's helping you understand those patterns. Yes. Everybody else don't have access to. Right. Like human behavior in some ways is predictable, in some ways is unpredictable. But just understanding biologically how we develop, like how we're socialized, the context that we live in, you know, different factors that contribute to our norms or what we feel appropriate or inappropriate. That is a lot of information that a therapist is coming into that session with and as you're talking through as you're listening and reflecting and sharing patterns we can then put into a larger picture and be like mm, this pattern is being influenced by xyz right and then yeah. to the doing as rashada say the the work in between the sessions is the hardest part but i think that that's what makes it a distinction from other types of professionals and that you do have theory and this knowledge and this science that's driving how you're understanding those patterns or the development of those patterns. Yes. Yes. And I appreciate that, that comment too, Rashada. That is where the hardest part comes in, but that's where also the biggest results come in, right? Yes. So you you got to have the balance of that. So we've been using this term professionals. I think it's also important that we sort of just identify what that is yeah. because we're in a time period where people talk more openly about going to therapy and therapy. I should say black and brown folks talk more openly about therapy and going to therapy. But I, I, I don't want to take for granted that everybody's clear around the nitty gritty. Right. So when we talk about therapists, uh, we're talking our mental health professionals. Um, we're talking about folks with a range of different degrees. So doctoral degrees could include a PhD or a PsyD, P-S-Y-D. And typically those folks would therefore be licensed as psychologists. Individuals who have a PhD have gone through no less than five years of supervised training um, and um, have the uh, also have engaged in a rigorous process of learning and engaging in their own research. Mm -hmm. Individuals who have a PsyD have also had probably equal amounts of supervised training with therapy. The emphasis on the research component is more focused on practitioner um, rather than um, particularly maybe degenerating new science or new theories and models. So you can be a licensed psychologist in any of the states um, and uh, with when you hold a PhD or a PsyD. 
I think it's really important. There was just um, a case that was recently brought to my attention in Arizona where there was this woman um, who was actually fraudulently saying that she was a licensed clinical psychologist. Mm. A black woman that really hurt mm. my feelings. Personally, Luanda, she sits had on a white lab coat. No. Blood pressure cuff and stethoscope. <laughs> like, no. You don't do that. No. Say it ain't so. He was pretending to be a licensed psychologist. She was not, right? So do your due diligence, right? You could we'll talk about platforms where you may be able to encounter psychologists, and usually those places yeah. include a host of reputable folks. But it, you can always go to your state board um, presence on the internet and just search for that person's name, and their license number should come up if they have any sort of offenses or any. Um, disruptions in their license that will also be there so that's a little bit of extra protection for you so you have phds or psyd and then you might have folks that are licensed at the um, master's level so a ma most master's program or either an accelerated 18-month program or two-month program two-year program sorry 18-month or two-year program and they're either going to be a licensed professional counselor or licensed mental health counselor um, you could even have some folks licensed as a social worker um um, I just went blank. I forget. Oh, a license in marriage and family therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and so those folks have gone to some additional training beyond their undergraduate degree with the specific emphasis um, on working with clients and the development of um, therapy skills. Um, and really, there's a lot of nuance sort of in like how they may approach their work with you based on what those credentials are. But you need to see some of those letters behind someone's name for them to be a licensed yeah. mental health professional. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I forget anything. Think LPC, licensed professional counselors, which is like a, and it's specific to different states, right? So there's multiple different mastery level um, clinicians, and it varies based on states. Like there, I think there's like licensed. Um, mental health professionals in the East Coast and like New York, and then there's licensed professional counselors in Texas. Um, then there's more prominent here in the West um, is licensed uh, clinical social workers. So I think that L is what gives you some indicator that there's a license. And what licensure means is that there is a board, there's a regulatory board that makes certain that, you know, the clinicians are operating from number one, a set, a code of ethics, right? So that kind of gets into what we can do, what we cannot do, what our highest aspirations are, you know, what's legal or illegal for that state. And then also, in, which I think is the critical part, make certain that there is some regulations around their continuing education. Meaning mm -hmm have to consistently continue to engage and learn more and understand the human experience, the nuances thereof, be culturally sensitive. And so you have a licensing board that's governing that. Yeah. Anytime you worked uh, as long as we work to, uh, you know, get our license, then you're going to do what you need to do to keep those licenses. Absolutely. And that's that extra, extra accountability that makes um, professionals, whether they're mastery level or doctoral level, um, I think more ethical in their practice because they're kind of trying to make certain, make certain that they maintain or exceed what the standard is. Absolutely. Um, I, I recently had um, a conversation with a potential client and there were some concerns around, um, you know, record keeping and, and, and um, confidentiality, even though I have all of that really well spelled out in my informed consent documents. And at the at the end of the exchange, my bottom line was, I'm not going to do anything to jeopardize my license. If I don't have a license, I can't do this work. This work is how I fuel some of my income, right? Exactly. And so 
So that's not sabotaging that. No, not <laughs> not for anyone in particular, let alone someone I have yet to even meet, right? Like, mm, I don't think so. So that license part is really important. So we've put in the chat places where there are reputable. So two things, likelihood that you're going to find not only a reputable therapist, but also where you are highly likely to find a black therapist or at the very least a therapist of color. Yeah. Um, because the other piece that we have to talk about is therapist fit. Yeah. So yes. you could live in a city like Houston, Texas, where there are literally thousands upon thousands of mental health professionals. That doesn't mean everyone is going to be best suited for you. Mm -hmm. And that's the other part about finding a therapist. There's one thing to go to therapy, but finding a therapist is also a process. Yeah. And so I think um, this is why it becomes also critically important that you don't wait until you were mm. felt like you were in a place like Meghan Markle, right? Yeah. That you're in a place where you feel like I don't even want to get up tomorrow. Because the reality is, if you're going to see somebody that's really good at what they're doing and a really good fit for you, they're not going to be able to see you that afternoon if you call in the morning. They're not, might not even mm. be able to see you for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So it's about sort of being proactive and recognizing that you might have to shop around. You, know? you probably will. It's like I tell people it's like dating. Mm -hmm. It's therapy is like finding finding a good fit is like dating. It doesn't mean that people aren't great people, that they don't have good characteristics, that they don't have good traits, that they're not a good person, but they may not be the best person for you. And so I think we have to approach therapy the same way because I hear often people like, oh, I tried therapy one time and it didn't work. And so I quit. And I'm like, we're more committed to dating or more committed to our hair products, you know, and skin and beauty products than we are to the therapeutic process. So I was how many co-washes you got in there? <laughs> from when back when I first so many of like oh that don't work Shea Moisture don't work <laughs> don't work gotta keep looking for different stuff because you want to get your head together and so I think therapy is the same thing you definitely have to um, shop around sometimes and to your point Rashad I don't know if you would agree or disagree Dr. Nikki I do think that like therapists that were appropriate for you in a season of your life when you were working through something isn't always going to be the most appropriate when you're in a different season of your life working through something different. I have clients now who are like, hey, I've been working with my other therapist. She's great and phenomenal. And she assisted me for this phase of life. But now I'm really moving more into sexual health, sexual intimacy. And I want somebody more specialized. So I'm looking into you, right? So I do think it's possible for your therapist to once have been able to meet your needs. And when you have different needs or you had a different developmental period in your life or the context has shifted, that you may need a different person and you may need a different approach. I, so let me just say, I'm not afraid to say this seven sessions with you, you ain't working for me no more, right? Like, <laughs> um, and so there is a fine line. Somebody teased me. Um, somebody we know, Lawanda Felicia, teased me. She was like, "You fire therapists real quick." And I was like, "You gotta give people a chance." I, I do think it's different for me. I am a licensed psychologist. I'm a black woman licensed psychologist. I am culturally responsive in all that I do. So I have the expectations that when I walk in the room, you're able to feet, um, meet me in my full, whole, complete self. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, I'm not interested in wasting my time or your time. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that that should be the barometer that you use. Not that they're making you, not that they're challenging you or making you accountable, but it's like, are they able to really hold you in your full self where you are? And there's yeah. perfectly acceptable to say, I think that I'm going to um, 
discontinue working with you for now uh, and pursue some other options. I, I do mm -hmm. think that that happens. But there mm -hmm. is, so part of what happens, I, if you know of any other practices, please chime in, Lawanda. But what, what I do and what most people that I know do as therapists, as mental health professionals, we'll offer you a free 10 to 15 minute consultation. Mm -hmm. So if you sort of go to one of these platforms, you are able to pull up my um, profile, Lawanda's profile, whoever else, um, Dr. Ebony's, whoever's profile like jumps out to you. And I say sort of, you can only go on a vibe, right? So, you know, you're looking at how a, how a person has chosen to um, either update their headshots, have their headshots, how, you know, that does- Or give, not. Or not. <laughs> that gives you information, right? Um, and so I say that's just sort of all that you can use to get started. And then you look at their bio or how they describe themselves, if the words they're using and how they describe their approach to therapy or what they have done stand out to you kind of like, oh, okay, that's, yeah, that sounds good. Then you make sort of a short list and you reach out to them and say, hey, I'm, are you taking new clients? If so, what's the process? And typically mm -hmm. that is like a 10 to 15 minute call where the therapist will talk more about what their practice is. So it's like, let me introduce myself. It's like speed dating. And then the therapist will gently ask you, what's bringing you to therapy right now? What do you want to work on? Um, because I have, because my practice is only part-time, I work full-time as a corporate um, DEI trainer. Um, I know that there's a certain level of sort of severity or symptomatic mm. clients that I can't handle. Right, right. And so I, I will ask um, even in that time about, you know, any history with trauma or are there any history of hospitalization or suicidality um, right there in that conversation? Because if there are clients with that level of severity, I can't offer the type of support because I'm not full time. I don't have a sort of support staff. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have credentials with, you know, a, a, a work in concert with any other psychiatrists or, or hospitals. And so that's, I'm not the best fit for you. Yeah. And that also can happen in that conversation where the therapist might say, that's not really my expertise. And what I also typically do because I, because I have so much pride and um, faith in our uh, profession, I keep a list of folks. And if I feel like, I mean, mm. it's nothing for me to be able to say, I'm not it for you, but I really think you should go work with this person or, or mm -hmm. call people next. Um, and that's part of what goes. And then let's say you have that conversation, you vibe with someone, you think, I think this is it. You have those first few appointments. I tell all of my new clients, let's work together for at least three sessions. Consistently, mm -hmm. we meet every week. By the end of that, we'll both have a pretty good idea yeah of whether this has some longevity or whether we're not clicking. Right. Um, and then we could always talk about, do we meet every other week? What's mm -hmm. what going to be the cadence of how we meet and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The frequency will change. Yeah. Um, or could change. And I think that that's important to underscore as we um, are wrapping up. I see that we're getting close to time. So feel free to drop any additional questions y'all may have. I think that's important to highlight sometimes because I have met with some clients who have kind of taken it personal when they've done these initial consults. I'm like, oh, well, they say we wasn't a good fit. Well, maybe it's not their specialty, right? 
So just because a, a therapist may say to you that they don't feel like you're a good fit, I know it's hard not to accept that or interpret that or, or internalize that as rejection, but it could be just that. Like, it's just that we're not a good fit because of the very things that you mentioned. You know, if you're full-time or part-time, the level of severity, the support that you need, the specialty in which they offer. I don't think, you know, in where I am in my career, I could fully treat eating disorders, right? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't be a good fit because that's not my specialty. But I feel like Dr. Uh, Ebony could, you know, mm -hmm. because that's her area. That's something that she has way more expertise. And so it wouldn't be that I don't necessarily want to work with a person, but I want to do them justice and I want them to have the best fit there is. So yeah. wanted to put that out there um, as we were wrapping up. I know we have to wrap up. We did start a little bit, bit late, um, but I have oh, yeah. like one it's probably not going to always say one, but it ain't never just one. But I want to make sure we talk about this sort of culturally congruent part, right? Um, so one, it's a really good place to start and find if you're a Black person finding a Black therapist, Latina person finding a Latino therapist, Latinx therapist. That's sort of a good place to start. But even then, you still have to do your shopping around, mm -hmm, right? Because mm -hmm. we are not a monolith. We know that intellectually, so let's apply that even to this situation. Mm. But I also want to recognize that you may either be limited by insurance or live in a space that's not as populous as a place like um, Houston or the Bay Area or wherever. And so your options may be limited. And But I absolutely believe that if your racial identity, your ethnic and cultural identity are central to who you are, you cannot get effective therapy if your therapist is not able to take that into account. Yeah, that's good. And so you can get, you can ask those questions when you're doing that sort of dating, that shopping around, you can ask those questions. Mm -hmm. What's been your experience of working with black women, right? Listen, I'm telling you my trans and queer clients, potential clients before they turn into clients, they be grilling me. Mm -hmm. Experience of working with trans clients, you know, what are their racial ethnic identities? What's your approach? All of that, which I appreciate because it's like, okay, yeah. I think that speaks to the empowerment and agency that people should feel when they're going into looking for their therapist or Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and so that brings in another layer, right? That we are not only monoliths racially, ethnically, but we are intersecting identities. Um, mm. And so take that into account, right? If you are a queer person, you have the right to look for a queer affirming therapists. You have the right to look for a culturally congruent queer affirming therapist, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean your reasons for coming to therapy are around problems with those things, but it means right. that you're able to show up and be your full complete self, not have to police your language, not have to code switch, not, not have, have to explain, explain. and educate. <laughs> like, oh my God. You absolutely have a right to all of those things, right? Right. Um, and so ask so the questions. Question. Um, look for those things on the other side, right? Look for those things. Is it explicit? Because we don't want to make assumptions. Just because they look like you, all skin folks ain't kin folks. And I tell my clients that as well. Yes assumptions because of what people look like if they are not explicitly spelling out that they are kink you know kink aware or kink mm -hmm. affirming or queer aligned or racially just aligned i need to see it in writing and mm -hmm. we're getting the practice of looking for that like see it in writing to see if that's what they are it's what that's what's central to their practice because absolutely i guarantee you it's going to be on paper absolutely so though so i just wanted to make sure we put that i had to put that piece out especially for the break room we couldn't in without that. Um, 
I think those are really like sort of the basics of therapy. I mean, I feel like everybody need to, I don't think everybody's at a place every every point in their life where they need to go. But if you have made it through this year of 2020, you feel like you need some support. Nobody has, I'm going to say this, I'm going to be bold. No one has survived 2020 and not need therapy. I'm going to just go out on a limb and say that. I, I just feel like in my spirit, nobody has went through 2020 and not needed therapy. This has been unprecedented, y'all. Uh, over half a million folks have died that did not have to die, disproportionately black and brown folks. You're talking about not being able to grieve in the way that you would usually grieve. We're talking about increased isolation for people. That increased isolation leading to unprecedented rates of anxiety, of depression, right? We're talking about people grieving ceremonial, um, like ceremony things that, ceremonial things that usually make them feel good or milestones or not being able to be with family. We are interpersonally at our core. We are relational beings at our core. That's how we're hardwired. And we have had to actively not engage in that for over 365 days due to the poor, poor handling of the last administration. So those things alone, and I didn't even scratch the surface, is enough for us to be impacted, right? And I think that it's important for us to acknowledge that and sit with that. You know, I'm trying to get back to Houston right now to see my therapist because that's the other piece that we'll have to touch on at another time. Like clinicians are licensed in their state. So because she's not here in California, she can't see me. She can only see me if I'm in Texas, but she's good and she's culturally competent and she's changed my life. So I'm trying to get back to her. So even as a therapist, I know that I haven't escaped 2020 unchanged and without. Mm -hmm. So I know that everybody else is in the same boat. So, yeah. Therapy. Get you some. <laughs> Get you some in your life. That is the new it. I say this. It's two types of people in the world. People in therapy and people who need to be. <laughs> that's, it. that's it. People in therapy who needs me. That is it. So I, I hope we um answered all of your questions. I've enjoyed this conversation. I don't doubt at all that we'll revisit therapy, what therapy is and isn't, what it can really do for you, um, how you can maximize it. We'll come back to these topics. I know for sure as the break room continues. So, Luanda, are you ready? I was going to say, you know, speaking of therapy. And this is, a good, this is a good segue. I had a pretty good week, y'all. So I haven't had anybody really get on my last, last nerve. But I did have somebody get on my last nerve. And it's related to the tea that I opened up with. Your boy, Pierce Morgan. Oh. Pierce Morgan it. is a host of Good Morning Britain. And for, I don't know how long, he has been slamming Meghan Markle. Like, just going in on her on this show. Come to find out. We got 60 seconds for our uh, last nerve, y'all. So I'm, I'm, I'm timing myself. So come to find out, she rejected him. That's what it's about. This personal thing that happened between you and her has contributed to you using your, mis, misusing and abusing your platform to go in on her for however long you've gone in on her. Then finally, finally, his colleague calls him out on it. So he been dishing it, y'all. He been dishing it out, dishing it out. His colleague is very calm, very centered. He he's he doesn't raise his voice, and he's but yet he's sharpening his words, and he can't handle it. And then all of a sudden he he storms off, and then he quits. And so I'm just like I'm so over people engaging in dishing out anti-blackness, but can't take criticism and can't take heat. 
it gets on my last nerve. If you're going to be bold enough to go for, come for somebody and talk about somebody, then be bold enough to get critiqued. And he ain't. He can't stand the heat, Rashada. He couldn't. So he got on my last nerve this past week. I don't even think I made it to a minute. You didn't need more than that because you said it all. <laughs> Boo, your feelings is hurt because she didn't want you. How and you know what? You could have gone to therapy and worked through that. But rather exactly. what you did was you, um, you sublimated and projected all of your rejection issues for all of the world to see. And the moment you got called on it, your fragile masculinity and your fragile whiteness folded in on yourself. Okay? I couldn't handle it. You now couldn't. You lost your whole, your whole TV show. You lost. You walked your, your own TV show. And I don't have no empathy for you, sir. I don't. You need to go to therapy. And that's that on that. Okay. <laughs> God, I think that's the end for us. Thank that you is for the end, y'all. Thank y'all for tuning in. We will be back next week at the same time, same place. And we are excited to continue to dive into these conversations that center Black mental health.